And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. You lost your magic. They knocked you off your game. Your Carlness went right out the window. What's with this Carlness? It's not even a, a real word. It's a conjunction, a preposition. It's a philosophy, a way of life. It's your name with miss attached to it. Bob, listen to me. If you'd have done what I asked you to and come in my dressing room before the show, you'd have known that you weren't supposed to come out here until I introduced you. Jack, I tried to get into your dressing room, but I didn't have a nickel. I understand you're pretty funny as a DJ. Comedy is a kind of hobby of mine. Well, well, actually, it's a little more than just a hobby. Reader's Digest is considering publishing two of my jokes. Really? Yeah. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Money Dollar. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, it's a gritty crime drama. On Broadway is My Beat, starring Larry Thor as homicide detective Danny Clover from 1951. Then Cary Grant and his real-life wife, Betsy Drake, star in part one of a comedy adventure of Mr. and Mrs. Blandings. But first, let me say hello to my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? What's up, Carl? Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Mike Costello. Hey, happy New Year to you. Executive producer. Yeah. We uh, took a couple weeks off, right? And had a... Well, you did. I did. Yeah. Took a couple weeks off. (laughs) Notice how she says we. Right. Mike and I were here working while you were in Florida. Well, I'm back to work. So it's Did like you I bring never us left. any presents or any sunshine or anything like I, that? I brought myself, and I oh, am a ray of sunshine. Oh, present enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to see you, Lisa. It's good to be back. All right. Well, we're going to start things off with a great detective adventure on Broadway is my beat. Came to radio in 1949, lasted all the way to 1954. Originally, Anthony Ross played... New York Times Square detective Danny Clover, but then pretty quickly into the series, Larry Thor took over. It opened to the theme, I'll Take Manhattan. Clover worked homicide from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Charles Calvert co-starred as Sergeant Gino Tartaglia, and Jack Crucian was Sergeant Mugavin. This is a broadcast from December 8, 1951. It's called Mary Smith Murder Case. It stars Larry Thor. Here's part one now. Broadway is my beat. Broadway's my beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle. The gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. When the winter moon dips low over Broadway and hides again behind the scudding mists, Broadway is numbed. The year's ending is too swift. There's too much nighttime in December, as if the dimness of the subway had moved one flight up, as if the lights were not quite lights, but yellow things that drain off into shadows. It's a time of the muffler, the hurry up, the time of the wind. The dreams are dying, and it's a long while before April comes again. The place where I was, also one flight up above the street of the tired apartment houses and hotels. The avenue leased to anybody on the premise that home is any place where the rent is cheap. Hotel Savannah. The man who walked beside me and explained it all to me. After all, Lieutenant. After After all. all. What? The do not disturb sign has been hanging on the front of the door all day. And here it is almost midnight. So? So, a place like this, rent a room for three fifty, pull out the old pills, leave the world to its own sorrow. 
Miss Savannah's getting quite a reputation for... Oh, this is the room. Now, that's how I found her. Right there on the bed. I could tell right away she wasn't a suicide. That bullet hole, no gun. Who is she? Took the room yesterday. Registered as Mary Smith. Ah, I keep a straight face as long as the payment is made in advance. Even she didn't have luggage, so what? Quite a few of my friends have not a presentable suitcase to their names. What about her visitors? This is her home away from home. That's our philosophy here, the Savannah. Why shouldn't she have visitors? After did she have them? I don't know. People come and go. A regular little world in itself, this Savannah. I remark this to myself often as I stand at the desk. Like I was looking on into a regular little world. That's why I always don't say... Don't say it, Mr. Burgess. I'll take it from here. And consider the place where a girl lies dead. A room of transients, a cubicle, a lotted, sold to the passer-through. The mark of their passing, the scars where cigarettes were ground into the desktop, the hotel stationery, the postcards with the scenes of gaiety tinted in, ink-stained, finger-smudged, blank. The sign, please turn out lights when departing, leave key at desk. The bed, where passing sleep is sold at the current rate. And in it, Mary Smith, dead by violence. Phone it in. Check other hotel personnel. Be told for the day she'd been there, the girl was quiet, discreet, no trouble at all. Visitors? Maybe, maybe not. Policy not to notice things like that. And take it home with you. Try to sleep against the image, desolate, lonely. Not quite make it. And welcome the coming of day. Somewhere to go, someone to talk to. You have a bad night, Danny. You have the look of someone who has slept with rocks in his bed, head to foot. That's your morning's greeting to me, Sergeant Tataglia? You see? Other mornings you refer to me as Gino. But this morning? Danny, why is this morning different from all other mornings? You got something for me, Gino. Goes without saying. Sure, I got something. We coded that girl's fingerprints, that Mary Smith. Put them on the wire to the chums of the FBI during the night. Had an answer? Those chums of the FBI are veritable Johnnies on the spot, Danny. You had an answer. On the spot. According to the info lately come to hand and now contained in my breast pocket, Danny, this Mary Smith was not a Mary Smith. Oh, no. Not at all. All right, Gino. Who was she? A Peg Ramsey, formerly of the Women's Army Corps, which makes her a former wife, which makes it easy for our Washington co-workers to check such things as fingerprints flying through the night. Such things as... As what? As the occupation of the deceased prior to say. This Peg Ramsey, heretofore known as Mary Smith, was a member of the publishing firm, Taggart and Ramsey on Lower Madison. It brightens the morning for you, Danny, this info? You tried, Gino. You really did. Thanks. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Get around to believing it, Mr. Taggart. Miss Ramsey was murdered in a cheap hotel named the Savannah. We want you to help us. What was she doing there? Was she registered? Look, Mr. Taggart... I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe it. Let's try it this way. What did Miss Ramsey do here at your publishing house? At our publishing house, Mr. Clover, Peg is as much responsible for the success of Taggart and Ramsey as I am. Of course, I'm directly responsible for a book club's choosing four of our novels. Peg only had three, but then... Just tell me what she did. Had final say on what we would publish and what we wouldn't. Along with me, of course. Also, the discovery of talent, and so forth, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Friends? Every unpublished author in the world. You must understand, Taggart and Ramsey enjoys an enviable reputation. We publish stuff that others wouldn't even touch. Of course, sometimes we take a loss publishing literature, but we make up for it. 
Put out a crossword puzzle book. And yeah, but what all... about special friends, Mr. Taggart? Oh, working on the premise that special friends can be special enemies, huh? That happens in our latest mystery, Killed the Murderer Dead. It'll be released for publication in May. Mr. Taggart. Peg had a very special friend. Who? William Walter. Who is William Walter? A writer. Where do I find him? Well, I don't know. I have no idea. Peg handled him. What made him so special? Well, according to Peg, he was special because he was talent. The once-in-a-lifetime talent. Personally, I've heard that phrase too many times. Last year, after such a talent, we had to publish jumbo crossword puzzle books five, six, and seven in a hurry. And that was the relationship between Miss Ramsey and this William Walter, publisher and writer. Oh, I think more. I think Peg had her times to be a publisher and times to be a woman. It's my belief from observing Peg that she mixed the two up for this boy. What else about this William Walter? He was brought here from North Carolina. Brought here? You mean your firm subsidized him? <laughs> a writer's dream, but no. He was brought here by a Mrs. Janice Kirk, a self-styled discoverer of talent. Knew Peg slightly, brought him to her with a couple chapters of a novel. Peg believed in this boy and gave him uh, an advance. Where do I find this Mrs. Kirk? Oh, I can tell you that easily. At the Ruxton Hotel. I've had cocktails with her there. An attractive woman, the way those women from North Carolina can be. Now, uh, will you pardon me, Mr. Clover? And at the hotel, ask for Janice Kirk. Be told she's been seen entering the cocktail lounge. Go there. The head waiter raises his eyebrows with an effort, tilts a patrician head slightly to the left, and that way indicates the woman sitting alone, sipping the colorless drink, sipping the colorless music, weaving its frightened way through potted palms. And on her face, the smile of acceptance for the music, for the furtive cocktail time laughter, for the glances of men attached, unattached. Hello there, Norred. Mrs. Kirk? I saw Alec tilt his Roman coin head, and that brought you to me. Whatever the reason, I'm glad. It's been lonely. I'm from the police, Mrs. Kirk. You didn't have to tell me that. You could have let me believe you'd walked in here and seen a, well, an interesting face sitting alone with her lost thoughts, and you took pity in it. You could have let me believe that. I've just come from Alfred Tigard of Tigard and Ramsey. Alfred, he... you tell him I'm very disappointed in him. He hasn't asked me to cocktails in... Well, it must be hours now. You tell him that. He said you knew Peg Ramsey. Miss Ramsey, I've taken notice of her. Talked to her, I remember. I wouldn't call that knowing a girl. Now, why did he go and tell you I knew her? She's dead, murdered. She gave her name as Mary Smith and was killed in a hotel room. Why? Didn't she have a home of her own? I didn't mean to say that. Truly, I didn't mean to be flippant over death. Not a death like that, but an empty way to die. Tiger told me something else. I'm sure he did. It was about the boy, wasn't it? He told me about a boy, a young writer, William Walter. William, sweet William, sweet, sweet William. Maybe you can tell me more about him than Tiger did, Mrs. Kirk. Well, I know I can. I know more about him than I know about myself. Wasn't it I that discovered the burning tree of talent in him? Wasn't it I that beat him, tortured him, soothed him till he put it all on paper? Figuratively, that is. I did that to him, figuratively. Wasn't it I that brought him here so his poetry could cry out across your metropolitan sky? Where is he now? I don't know. You said that... I it... said I don't know. First William stayed here, right here in this hotel close to me. And he took to living in all kinds of places, dismal places, dirty little furnished rooms, tenements, sordid hotels. Let me just high and dry for months. 
so as he could taste your city. Then you haven't seen him. There is a phone call for you, Mr. Clover. You can take it here. Thank you. Danny Clover speaking. You want it, Danny, right away. Savannah Hotel. Why, Gino? A boy, shot to death in one of the rooms. Savannah Hotel, Danny, the same one... I hate your telephones. They interrupt just when... Something bad's happened, hasn't it? I know it from your face. Something real bad. And I'll tell you another thing, Mr. Clover. I should have kept my big mouth shut about the reputation of the Savannah. Right down here. Same floor, same hallway as the last time I was here. Not only that. Same room. There he is, Mr. Clover. You know who? Yeah. Registered about noon. Gave his name as William Walter. Said he was a writer. <laughs> First time we ever had a writer. And in the room of transience, yet another one sprawled there across the bed. A boy, like a tired puppet, discarded... And the bullet hole in his temple gave him another quality. An attitude suddenly and forever caught in an instant of time. And the gun held in his dangling fist. The end of him. The death of William Walter. On the eve of the merry holidays, Broadway treats itself to a ten-cent sprig of mistletoe, stands under it, watches the women walk by. They hug the warm fur close. Let the December wind riffle it against their mouths, their cheeks. Let the wind breathe them away from you. And for background, the music flowing out of the tinseled metallic throats of loudspeakers. And the kids, standing carefully away from the assorted street corner Santa Clauses, eyeing them, studying them, lifting great puzzled eyes to the grown-up who holds their hand. Good, huh, kid? Makes you glow, so find the coin, drop it in the pot, pay off for the year that never was. And in a room, again, the place of the dead. Be alone with it for a little while. Be alone with the boy with a bullet wound in his temple. The boy who'd come to the great city with poetry to offer, and in return had been given this. The end of searching, the end of pain. Be alone with it until Detective Mugovan comes back. I had a little talk with Burgess, the manager, Danny, like you told me. Yeah? Says the boy made a big to-do when he registered. Burgess tell you why? Uh-huh. Seems this kid, William Walter, insisted on having exactly the same room where the girl was killed. Manager tried to talk him out of it, offered him other rooms. Kid wouldn't have it any other way. I think I know why. Sure. Boy was a writer. It gives him a right to emotions the rest of us aren't privileged with. That's why he has to die in a room You where... through, Mugaman? Yeah. I guess I've been in it too long, Danny. Here's why he wanted this room. Found it in his pocket. Marriage license. I look at it, Danny. Thanks. Hmm. Issued to William Walder and Margaret Ramsey. That'd be Peg Ramsey, the murdered girl, huh, Danny? Yeah. A place like this probably going to keep the marriage a secret. Uh-huh. Hey, come over here, Michael. Found something else. Here on the desk. Oh, it's written so fine. Wait, I... Gotta put on my glasses. Sure, go ahead. Uh, Peg, beloved Peg. All of it is done, finished, for you, now for me. For someone you breathed life into, then dying, took it from him. Done, finished. He wrote this, Dan? We'll check it at headquarters. I think we'll find he wrote it. With a gun in his hand like that, this note, how he insisted on the same room, suicide, huh? 
Call it in, Muggerman. Danny? Uh, come on in, Muggerman. Been down a technical? Yeah, for an hour, more or less. Took me that long to get out of Gordon what he knew as soon as I walked in. Now, guys like Gordon give mothers a bad name. <laughs> gave you a rough time, huh? Yeah, had me looking through microscopes, gave me a short lecture on the theory of spectrochemical analysis. Then when I didn't applaud, he got angry. Anyhow, the gun that William Walter allegedly killed himself with also fired the bullet that killed Peg Ramsey. Murder and suicide, huh, Michael? I guess so. What do you think? Take a look at this suicide note. I saw it, Danny. Well, I know you saw it, but look at it again. It's a suicide note. Is it? Hmm? Show me where he says he's going to kill himself. Show me where it says that he... What is it, Gino? Lady outside to see you, Danny. What lady? Name's Janice Kirk. Show her in. This way to see Danny Clover. Thanks. That'll be all, Sergeant. Well, please sit down, Miss Kirk. This is uh, Detective Muggerman. How do you do? Mrs. Kirk. I'm going to leave town tomorrow, Mr. Clover. I see. Yes. This is a lonely city now. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of it because so many things, mostly... William Walter? Yes. Oh, I want to say, Mrs. Kirk, how sorry we are. Thank you. Mrs. Kirk, one thing I'd like to ask you, just what interest... The way you said Mrs., the little glance that just happened between you, you and this other gentleman. The Mrs. means I was once married, my husband is dead. I see. And just what interest I had in William. He was a great writer. I said I was lonely. Now that William's dead, the world's a little bit more lonely, too. Though it'll never know it. Just why did you come here? I want to ask something of you, may I? Of course. I brought William here. I want to take him home. I want to bury him. We've already sent notification to North Carolina to his uh, next of kin. But in this case, don't you see, it should be me who should take... Well, call it responsibility. Call it whatever. I'm sorry, Mrs. Kirk. Until we hear from the next of kin, we have no authority I loved to... him. Is that what you wanted to hear me say? Well, go ahead, exchange glances again. Snick a little bit behind your hands. Mrs. Kirk, what the lieutenant said simply Very means... Well, you see, it really makes no difference at all. For a moment, consider her fury at being deprived of the dead boy and understand it. Understand it because of the sudden statement of love for him. Blurt it out, bitter, explosive, no longer to be contained. But let it also open a door onto new questions. The finding out of why a boy's life must be taken. A boy of talent. A boy who was about to be married. A boy who had apparently scrawled a note against the insistent calling of death. Murder, suicide... Make sure which. Let it take you to a place you've been before, to a man you talked to before. Can't tell you how glad I am you came back to me, Mr. Clover. I just can't tell you how glad. Why, Mr. Taggart? Well, uh, this is perhaps an uncalled-for thought after those dismal doings at the Savannah Hotel. Even frantic, you might say. Peg and that boy. Just tell me, Mr. Taggart. Well, I was wondering, uh, just a fleeting thought, mind you. Did you happen to find the manuscript of the boy's novel... Did he perchance die with it there in the hotel room? No, no, we didn't find it. Why? Well, you must forgive me for this rather scavenger-like idea I've had, but not that we won't take care of the boy's estate, mind you, but it, it seems a provocative publishing stunt. You want to publish the work posthumously. A boy kills himself, leaves a novel. That would make a splash in the literary world. Yes, I would have tried to put it more tastefully, but that's it, exactly. Sorry, I can't help you. 
Then I can't for the life of me imagine what else we have to talk about. The reason why I came. I'm not sure the boy killed himself. He was going to marry Peg Ramsey. Did you know that? Marry? No, I didn't. Imagine. You said you met the boy when he first came here, that you... Quickly, a quick introduction from Peg. As I said, his work impressed her, so I okayed an advance for him. That's why if you find the manuscript, I feel it rightfully belongs to me. And that's all you knew of him? The advance? Peg Ramsey's interest in him? Sponsoring of That him. and the money I've already expended on him. For advanced publicity on Peg's newfound genius, I even hired Tonto Jones. Who? Tonto Jones. Ace Blurbist. The Guy de Maupassant of book jackets. Told him to stick with Walter and get to his marrow, find out everything about him, and write it in a hundred words to fit the back of a book jacket. I'd like to talk to a man who knew all about William Walter. You have his address? Greenwich Village, somewhere. The girl will give it to you on your way out, Mr. Clover. You were going, weren't you? That's the first portion of Broadway Is My Beat. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Now back to Broadway is my beat. So downtown now to Greenwich Village. Turn off 11th Street on the bank. Past the bargain basement bars where the floor shows chuckle at the customers. And the local color is prefabricated. And find an address, another basement, where the door is a painted mural of pink and satyrs with a motto in French over the brass knocker. When the door opens, the man puts a finger to his lips. Shh. It's the last side. Huh? Schoenberg bought the records today. Come on. Come on. Everybody's inside. All right. Grab yourself a hunk of floor and sit. If you don't mind, I'll stand. What did you bring? What? I told Barbette to tell everybody to bring a record. Didn't she? I brought a badge. Hey, who are you? Aren't you one of Babette's... Police, I'm looking for Tonto Jones. Why? Where is he? Me? What do you want me for? A few questions, Tonto. By the way, where'd you get that name? I spent a summer in Mexico trying to write. The natives gave me the name affectionately. It stuck. All right. Now tell me what you can about William Walter. I was going to do his dust jacket for him. You mean that stuff on the cover of a book that tells how good it is? What do you mean, stuff? Just tell me about William Walter. <laughs> I could have done it, too. Have somebody to support me. I could have written a novel. Did William Walter finish his? About a week ago. Pretty good, too. Oh, not that I would have approached his subject matter that way. Then you read it. Parts of it. Other parts he read to us. To us? Mm-hmm. People will drop in from time to time. We had varied opinions as to the novel's significance. Of course, if you're the type who's satisfied with sheer entertainment value... Where well, is the novel? Manuscript? Uh-huh. Oh, he left it here for me to look over. A couple of days ago, Janice picked it up. Janice Kirk? She said Willie sent her for it. I gave it to her. Hey, Tonto. We're disturbing your guest, Tonto. Go back to him. I'm just leaving. Hello, Mr. Clover. 
May I come in, Mrs. Kirk? Well, you don't want to talk to me now. I've been crying. I look a mess. It'll only be a few minutes. You promise? Yes. Well, then come in. You wait right here. I'll go in the next room and do my face. We can talk. Well, go on. Talk to me. I've just come from Greenwich Village, Mrs. Kirk. Mm, I hate it, don't you? I spoke to Mr. Jones. Tonto? That's right, Tonto Jones. You know what Tonto means? No, I don't. I didn't either till I looked it up. He's crazy. Fat or stupid. No one pays any attention to what Tonto says. I do. How do I look better? Of course I look better. Can you tell I've been crying? No. Now we'll talk. Did you like the novel? Now, be more explicit, Mr. Clover. I'm always reading. What novel did you mean? William Walter's novel. You know something? I told you I loved the boy. And I did. Even after he was so cruel to me. What about the novel, Mrs. Kirk? Well, that's what I mean. He didn't even let me read it after all I did for him. Maybe you didn't understand me, Mrs. Kirk. I said I saw Mr. Jones down in Greenwich Village. Well, he's a liar. About what? About anything he told you. He said you picked up Walter's novel a couple of days ago. I don't think he lied. Nobody else has that manuscript. And I suppose nobody will ever read it. I suppose not. Mrs. Kirk? Yes? You told me how hard you worked to foster the boy's talent, how you brought him here to New York, how everything was wrapped up in that boy and his novel. Doesn't it bother you that the manuscript is missing? Well, I... Do you have it? No, no, I don't. Did you destroy it? Did you? Well, what difference does it make? I'm just curious to know what the novel is about, that's all. I burned it before I read it. As soon as I got it here, I tore it up and burned it. That was the first part of it, wasn't it? Huh? What? To destroy everything about the boy. Destroy somebody you loved? How can you say that? You loved him, all right. Only he was going to marry Peg Ramsey. Did he show you the marriage license? Oh, he was never going to marry that girl. He just wanted his novel published, that's all. Oh, no. Marriage license usually means marriage. They were going to keep it secret, but they told you because you deserved to know. Deserved to know. Do you know why they told me to be cruel to me? To laugh at me? To slap me in the face with it? So you killed her. Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what that girl said to me? I'll pay you for the train fare you spent to bring him to New York. Even if I had killed her, could you blame me? But the boy you said you loved him. Him. Sitting there when I came into the room. I was ready to forgive him everything. I walked over to him, put my hands around his back. He shrugged him off. Kept writing. Writing a note to a girl who was dead. Did you ever hear anything as crazy as that? Note to a dead girl. We thought it was a suicide note. Then he went over to the bed and he sprawled out. And put his hands behind his head and then he stared at me. He stared hate at me. Because you'd killed Peg Ramsey? He knew it and he didn't go to the police. That made me think he still loved me. Why didn't he go to the police? Because he knew I'd crawl back to him. He wanted me there so he could tell me how much hate he had for me. How much he despised me. You didn't give him a chance. You destroyed him. Everything that he touched, you destroyed. The final thing to ride on a train. And he'd be back there with the baggage, the litter, the animals. Let's go, Mrs. Kirk. No one's going to do that to me, what he did. Not to me. Who did he think he was? Let's go. Night bursts open like a sudden flame on Broadway. The crowd swarm dances between the silhouettes of a thousand buildings. Dances its fury away against the time of morning until the night soaks up the sound and pain and color and turns it into dawn. It's Broadway, 
the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway, my beat. Broadway's My Beat stars Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover, with Charles Calvert as Tartaglia and Jack Crucian as Mugovan. The program was produced and directed by Elliot Lewis, with musical score composed and conducted by Alexander Courage. In tonight's story, Betty Lou Gerson was heard as Janice Kirk. Featured in the cast were Stan Waxman, Steve Roberts, and David Wolfe. Bill Anders speaking, and remember, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy open fire on your funny bone Sunday nights on the CBS Radio Network. And that's Broadway Is My Beat from December 8th, 1951, with the Mary Smith murder case starring Larry Thor. Also in the cast, Charles Calvert, Jack Crucian, Betty Lou Gearson, and Stan Waxman, sustained over CBS. All right, it's time now for a good comedy on Mr. and Mrs. Blandings. This starred Cary Grant and his real-life wife, Betsy Drake. They were riding the coattails of the novel-turned-1948-hit movie, Mr. and Mrs. Blandings build their dream house. It came to radio in 1951. Now, their dream house was built, though nothing in it worked very well. And the trials and expense and disillusionment of getting the house up are over now, and we get a glimpse into the Blandings' life together. It had a rough start. Critics slammed the series, but it did hit its stride and did pretty well. In fact, it uh, did well enough to be compared to other husband and wife airings of the era. Supporting cast members, Sheldon Leonard, Alvia Allman, Cliff Arquette, and Gail Gordon. It was sponsored by TWA and lasted one season. We have a great episode for you now from April 29, 1951. It's called Child Psychology. Stars Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. Here's part one of Mr. and Mrs. Blandings. Presenting Cary Grant and Betsy Drake as Mr. and Mrs. Blandings in a new series based on Eric Hodgins' best-selling novels, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House and Blandings Way. Mr. and Mrs. Blandings, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. As you know, Jim and Muriel Blandings always tried to be good parents to their two children, Susan and Joan. They've read books on child care, and they've attended lectures on child care. And from their wealth of experience, they have learned one thing, which, as Jim Blandings puts it, is... Child psychology is the answer. Child psychology is proven. Child psychology is tested. Our children always use child psychology. And we're the best-trained parents in town. (laughs) Muriel is well-trained, too. And so it was with... Quiet competence that she met the situation last night when her nine-year-old daughter, Susan, appeared and said, I won't be home for dinner tonight, Mother. No? Why not, dear? I'm going to run away and get married. (laughs) Susan, you can't do that. This is a school night. (laughs) Now, Now go wash your face. Mother, look at this article. Let's see. Um, the girls of today should prepare to become the mothers of tomorrow. Well, that's true, isn't it? Yes. As a matter of fact, if they don't, I wouldn't know who to tell to get ready. (laughs) But still, I say you're too young. What's that noise outside? Oh, that must be Johnny now. 
Johnny. Hi, Susan. You still want a loop? <laughs> Why not? This letter's awful heavy. Oh. Well, I'm not sure it's proper, but I'll come down and help you. Just a minute, Susan. Johnny. Hi, Miss Blandings. Johnny, you stay right there. I'm coming down and have a talk with you. Uh-oh. And you stay right here, young lady. I'll talk with you later. Hello, darling. Jim, I didn't know you were home yet. Just walked in the door. Well, you better walk right back out again. You have a fatherly duty to perform. Oh? Johnny Miller is waiting outside to elope with Susan. Johnny Miller and Susan? Muriel, have you been nipping at the raspberry cordial? <laughs> Jim, this is serious. Look out that side window. All right. Great Scott! He's putting up a ladder. You see, he could slip and come smashing to the ground. With my good ladder? <laughs> yes, and carrying one of your best daughters. Mm. I'll bring him in for a talk right away. <clears throat> oh, Johnny, it seems like a good time for a man-to-man -man talk. Man-to-man? -man? Gee, thanks. Don't mention it. And try to keep your voice from changing. <laughs> now, uh, sit right here, my boy. Yes, sir. Cigar? Not right now, thank you. A drink, perhaps. Anything you say. Coke is my drink. Mixer? Straight. Good boy. <laughs> you're, you're two fingers of Coke. Neat. Now, uh, <clears throat> uh, you want to marry my daughter, eh? Well, I guess so, sir. You guess so? It's something to do. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. So you decided to take Susan for your wife, eh? Yes, sir. It was either her or Agnes, and Agnes wears bands. How's that? A fellow wouldn't want a girl who has her teeth wired in. Uh, of course not. Of course not. She might rust. <laughs> now, look, Johnny, don't you think Susan might be a little young for marriage? She's only nine. That's the right time. Get him while they're like putty in your hands. Because <laughs> I remember I had somewhat the same idea. Because my wife was 20 when I married her. That's okay for you. Personally, I wouldn't take a chance on an old maid. I was in no position to shop around. Johnny, I hate to intrude with mundane matters, but wives have a nasty habit. They expect husbands to provide them with little luxuries like shoes. Oh, Susan has shoes. I've noticed. You're very observing. Now, supposing you're married to her. Those shoes wear out. She's got to have new ones. Then what do you do? We just have a fight about it. I see. Then she goes home to her mother and dad. Yeah? While she's there, she has them buy her new pair of shoes. Well, you've got the situation pretty well figured out, haven't you? Sure. I know these things. I listen to the radio. That's how John does it to his other wife. I see. Now, Johnny, I'm afraid we can't permit Susan to be your other wife. No? No, I'm sorry. But I think it's best that you wait until you're both a little older. I want you to finish grammar school and high school and college. And finally, when you have a fine job with the future, come back and we'll have another talk. Will you give me another Coke? I'll put one in the icebox now so it'll be cold. <laughs> okay, it's a deal. Shake. 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 
I hope the steak is all right. It's fine, Maud. Well, eat slow. At the price the butcher charged for that steak, you can't afford to swallow fast. <laughs> price control. <laughs> you, you, you know, something's got to be done about Susan. No, Jim, Susan's just going through a phase. Think back. Didn't you have any young loves? Well, at the age of nine? Well, hardly. No interest in the opposite sex? At that stage, the only thing I knew about sex was that it came after five. <laughs> well, of course, I, I, uh, I admit, I, uh, I did follow one girl home from school. But that was only to see the billy goat she had in the backyard. And to think I was flattered when you courted me. Yes, yes. Well, eat your dinner and don't worry about Johnny and Susan. It's not serious. Not serious? Muriel, imagine what the neighbors would think of us if those two had run off. What kind of parents would have a nine-year-old daughter running off to get married? Move over, Lem. You're standing on Grandpa. Muriel. <laughs> no, by heck, it's Grandma. Hard to tell. They're both wearing the same color flower sacks. <laughs> uh, were you calling me Mrs. Blandings? Yup, Emmy Lou. Bring in the corn squeezins and a char tobacco. <laughs> what? Maud, that is Mrs. Blanding's bucolic way of suggesting that you may serve the coffee and cigarettes. Uh, yes, Mr. Blandings. Oh, Maud, have you looked in at Susan? Oh, yes, ma'am. She's lying there in bed with the sweetest, most innocent smile on her face. Fell sound asleep listening to that radio program, Gruesome Murder Tales. <laughs> I'll get the coffee. That's it, Muriel. That's what, dear? Well, that's the trouble with Susan and all her friends. All the kids know today they learn from soap operas and jazz records and television. Well, you might say that their brain food is all canned. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Of course, they go to school. Well, school's fine, but, but it was after school that we lived. Games, hiking, camping. Muriel, let's get Susan started in the Girl Scouts tomorrow. Well, Jim, there aren't any Girl Scout groups in Lansdale. All right, then the campfire girls. No campfire girls, no bluebirds, not even any Boy Scouts. If you want a good deed done, you have to send to New Haven. <laughs> well, that's going to be changed. I've got a good mind to bring it up before the civic committee meeting tonight. What? And interrupt their poker game? Before it starts. I'll get up before them and I'll say, Gentlemen, the trouble with our modern children is that their knowledge of the world is gained from soap operas and jazz records and television. Their... Their, uh, what was that phrase I used? I thought it was rather clever at the time. What was that? Oh, yes, oh, yes. The one that goes, um, their brain food is all canned. Shall I write it down? Oh, no need for that. I'll think of something to say on the spur of the moment. <laughs> this meeting of the Lansdale Civic Committee is now in session. Charlie Smoot will read the minutes of the last meeting. A <clears throat> uh, uh, meeting was called to order at 8.5. Mayor Cronk presided and Fire Chief Gibbons banked the poker game. Business discussed was the purchase of a new flagpole for the school, a cash settlement of the Witty Hickey's claim, and the motion was passed to send flower to the late Edgar Yates, city exterminator who exterminated himself. <laughs> the meeting broke up promptly at 10.30 when the ace of spades fell out of Constable Arquette's sleeve. <laughs> So did we. Tonight you're playing your undershirt. I just got blame Myrna. Yeah, 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 yeah. Order, order. Let's get the business over so we can get to the poker game. Mr. Mayor, there's a serious matter I'd like to bring up. Have to wait your turn, Mr. Blandings. First of all, we'll have the treasurer's report. 
Go ahead, Treasure. Uh, <clears throat> gentlemen. <clears throat> Balance in our city treasury is approximately $126.42. Uh, depending. Depending on what? Depending on how I do in the poker game tonight. Great balls of fire. You mean to say you're using city funds to play poker? Uh, I didn't mean to say any such thing. Oh. Just slipped out. <laughs> as long as the treasure's here, I'd like to bring up an item. The city's got to be getting me a new uniform. Well, what's the matter with the old one? Yeah. What's the matter? Just take a look at the seat of these pants. Hey, they are wearing kind of thin. Thin? For me, every little breeze does more than whisper Louise. <laughs> We'll see what we can do. Mm. Now let's get to the poker game. I beg your pardon, Mayor. There's a matter I'd like to bring up before this meeting. Okay, but you're holding up the game. <sighs> Gentlemen, you are the civic fathers of this community. What are you going to do about children? Keep having them. <laughs> now that's settled, let's get started. I'll stack the chips. Twenty whites, ten reds, five blues. Gentlemen, please. This is a serious problem, a matter of deep concern to each and every one of you. Do you know what we urgently need? Two more blue chips. Right, two more. <laughs> no, no, not two more blue chips. There is a crying need in this community for organized recreation for our children. We don't have a single youth organization, no supervised play, no program for carrying on this all-important work. That's true. All children know today they learn from soap operas, jazz records, and television. Why, you might say... Yeah, you might say all their brain food is canned. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, eh? Mr. Blandings, I'm sure you were about to make a point. What is it? Just this, Mayor Cronk. I think we in this community should do something for our children. Well, Mr. Blandings, in me, you have an ally. Good. Then I'm sure you will support my proposition, which is that we appoint someone to institute a youth program to, well, for example, to conduct weekly nature trips, hikes into the woods, that sort of thing. Mr. Blanding, that's a beautiful thought. I do support your proposition. Nay, I go further. I propose that you be that person. Good. Me? <laughs> hey, you can't do this to me. Anyone second the motion? Second. But you can't do this to me. All in favor, say aye. Aye. Motion carried. Congratulations, Mr. Blanding. And cut for the deal. You did it to me. Good work. That's the first portion of Mr. and Mrs. Blanding's More of Hollywood 360 after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next time, it's the conclusion to Mr. and Mrs. Blanding, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. And then it's a good Western adventure, starring John Daner in Frontier Gentlemen. That's next time, right here on Hollywood 360.